how do you want to refer to them? They like to be referred to as private equity, but we're not wedded to that. Do you want to call them something else? Well, you know, I hate to use vulture because, you know, animals and birds only kill what they need to eat. Right. And these people do more than that. They're predators, predatory capitalists. It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello there, David. Good morning. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. The voices you heard in that cold open were Ralph and our featured guest today, Pulitzer Prize winning and New York Times bestselling financial journalist Gretchen Morganson, discussing the proper term to call the subjects of today's program. The first time I heard the term vulture capitalist was during the 2012 presidential campaign to describe Republican candidate Mitt Romney and the company he co-founded, Bain Capital. Bain specialized in taking over companies in what's called a leveraged buyout, saddling them with debt firing workers, then stripping the company's assets and selling the parts for a healthy profit. Companies like that are part of a small elite group of Wall Street financiers in the business called private equity. Ms. Morganson and her co-author, Joshua Rossner, have written a book titled, These are the Plunderers, How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America. And that title pretty much says it all. We're going to spend the entire program diving into the details with Ms. Morganson. Of course, it wouldn't be a Ralph Nader Radio Hour without the corporate crime report from our intrepid corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, is vulture really too nice a word for the titans of private equity? David? Gretchen Morganson is the senior financial reporter for the NBC News Investigative Unit. A former stockbroker, she won the Pulitzer Prize in 2002 for her trenchant and incisive reporting on Wall Street. Previously at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, she and co-author Joshua Rosner wrote the bestseller Reckless Endangerment, How Outside Ambition, Greed, and Corruption Led to Economic Armageddon, was about the mortgage crisis. Their latest book is These Are the Plunderers, How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Gretchen Morganson. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome, Gretchen. Listeners, please have patience here, because the way corporate criminals get their way is by trying to make things too complex and too abstract from your daily lives. But when Gretchen talks about these plunderers, and let's call them predatory capitalists, don't think that you're not being affected, whether your loved ones are patients in nursing homes, whether your workers being laid off, whether your consumers being gouged for drug or health care prices, whether your community is going to be hollowed out because the company that was doing okay was taken over by these vultures and closed down after they've extracted the wealth. So bear with us. We're going to walk through this plunder land, and we hope that you'll get interested enough in terms of what Gretchen is recommending by way of corrective action, which of course involves Congress, the Federal Trade Commission, the Justice Department, all the institutions we've talked about that you need to remind them of your sovereign power under the Constitution. So let's start with this, Gretchen. These predatory capitalists are in control of large pools of money. 
They get it from corporate surplus money. They get it from pension plans. They get it from individual very wealthy people looking for big returns. They're not satisfied with the stock market returns. They're looking for big returns. And so these predatory entrepreneurs look around and they see takeover targets. They see companies that may be low-valued in the stock market or mismanaged or vulnerable in other ways, and they develop something called the leveraged buyout, which is the tool they use. Can you explain in simple English what is a leveraged buyout? Sure, Ralph. Well, the key to this business model, this predatory capitalist business model that makes it so pernicious and so problematic is the heavy use of debt. So what these firms do is they spy a company that they want to take over and they use debt to do so. That's corporate debt. They raise money in the corporate bond market. And instead of raising money themselves, they put the debt on the company that they want to buy. And so it effectively finances the acquisition for the transaction. But the key here is that the debt is, generally speaking, very high, and it immediately hobbles the company that has taken it on. And what that means is that these men, and they generally are men who are running these companies, have to cut costs elsewhere around that company. As you know, it generally the first person, the first entity to get the cut is the workforce. The biggest expenditure of many companies is their labor force. They often are the first to go. Jobs are slashed after these company acquisitions using heavy amounts of debt. They also cut corners in other ways to make ends meet. You see, the company now has to pay enormous amounts of interest expense on the debt that was used to finance the transaction. Explain well, the debt. Let's say the company they're taking over is Ajax Corporation. How do they indebt the company? They take over enough shares to get control they collude with the CEO who wants a big payout for this scheme. Exactly how do they do it? Well, initially, they take over the shares, especially if it's a public company, they do that, of course. If it's a private company, then they arrange to buy the company out with the owners, the current owners, whoever they are. But initially, they buy the shares, but they immediately raise debt in the capital markets. So Ajax Corp would immediately raise corporate bonds to fund the transaction. So that's how it works. They buy the equity first, but the company immediately takes on debt to pay them back. And so they continue to levy debt on these companies so that they can extract the money and the returns that they're looking for. So it's generally speaking, not just one-time debt you know, raise, it's several times over several years. And this is how these predatory capitalists pay themselves back, even though the company is becoming more and more distressed because of the heavy okay. debt. Okay, now listeners, we're going to start getting very concrete. These are predatory capitalists that just use money to make money with huge tax loopholes and political influence in Washington. They're quite unlike in their unparalleled greed 
with the robber barons of the late 19th and early 20th century. Whatever you can say about these robber barons in the old days, they produced stuff. Carnegie produced steel. Rockefeller produced oil. Others produced textiles. They mistreated their workers. They gouged. They enriched themselves for sure. But these people produced nothing, nothing of use for people, nothing of daily use, whether it's necessities of life, products, services in the marketplace. They basically use the leverage of money and the loopholes in the tax system to make massive wealth for themselves. I mean, one of these guys, Steve Schwartzman, made $250 million in one year, and then another year he made over a billion dollars. He's with Blackstone. So let's go very concrete, Gretchen, with my question. Who was Katie Watson? Okay, Katie Watson was a toddler who went into the hospital in Arizona, and she did not receive the treatment that she should have. She had pneumonia. It was a devastating illness, and she became disabled, could not walk, basically was devastated by this hospital treatment, which generated a large malpractice award in the court. In that court, the judge advised the family to buy an insurance policy to cover Katie's care for as long as she would live. They did so. They went with a very highly rated insurance company called Executive Life, which was very well known back in the late 80s, early 90s. They bought this policy and they were doing fine with it. But all of a sudden, Executive Life failed. This was during the junk bond crash after Mike Milken and Drexel Burnham imploded on the scene in the late 80s. And Executive Life had been a big buyer of junk bonds and its collapse affected people like Katie Watson. She wound up getting a fraction of what she was promised by the insurance company because California seized it. They seized the company and they sold it to a French bank and the French bank's partner, Leon Black, now of Apollo, the founder of Apollo. The reason we tell this story in the plunderers, these are the plunderers, Ralph, is that this was a template for the kind of me first activities that these firms conduct, where many, many people end up being hurt by the activities, but only a small portion of only a small elite group wind up winning. So we had a situation where Leon Black wound up making billions of dollars by buying this insurance company when it was at its lows. He rode the value of the assets up, wound up paying the policyholders considerably less than they had been promised. Now, that was the decision of the insurance commissioner for the state of California. But we cite this case because it sort of is the, as I say, template for the heads they win, tails we lose aspect of this kind of capitalism. Just look at the effect on Katie Watson. She was helpless. She needed 24-hour care seven days a week. And her parents won a malpractice award. And the judge suggested they invest a lot of it in this safe, so-called safe 
insurance company, Executive Life, which was then going to provide $9,000 a month for 24-hour-a-day care for their little daughter. And it ended up where they could not get that $9,000 because of this vulture capital takeover and predatory takeover of this one sound company. So they strip-mined it for their own wealth and extracted the assets. And what happened to Katie Watson's parents, how'd they have to adjust in their daily life, housing, and where they lived? Well, they were not going to change the setup. They wanted to continue to take care of Katie. They did not want to put her in a lower cost home or or that kind of a situation. So they kept at it. They kept her at home, but they did wind up losing their home to foreclosure because they could not afford to pay the upkeep on the home in addition to paying for her care. And so they lost their home. They had to downsize. Some of her, Katie's siblings had to take jobs to help the family make ends meet. But at the end of the day, Ralph, Katie received a couple of million dollars less than what she had been promised. So over the course of time, it really added up. Now, Katie represents millions of victims of these predatory capitalists. Let's go to a factory that was prospering and producing aluminum in Missouri on the Mississippi River. How did these predatory capitalists deal with that one? And what happened? This was a company called Naranda, Ralph, and it was an aluminum mill in a town in the Boot Hill region of Missouri, and that's the southeastern portion of the state. Not a wealthy region of the state you know, considerably high poverty level. But this company had generated very good jobs for the entire town of New Madrid, Missouri. They were 2,500 workers. 2,500 workers, correct. They were proud of the smelter. They were proud of having a, a viable company that had been there for decades. Some of the workers had, their parents had worked there, their grandparents had worked there. It was a, an institution in the town. It also was responsible for 30% of the tax rolls and the school system tax rolls. So it was a huge contributor to the town and to the community. Well, Apollo, again, this is the firm founded by Leon Black, came along and bought the smelter. And they proceeded to extract three times their investment over the course of several years out of Naranda. They sucked three times their investment out of the company by raising debt on the company. That was an immediate fix for them. They also began to have trouble paying the debt and they had to slash jobs. But over time, the company was devastated by the activities of Apollo. And the company began to falter. And there were layoffs. And then there were more layoffs. And then the company decided that it was going to ask for a rate decrease from the electric utility that provided it with its electricity. Obviously, that was a big expense for the company, running the plant 24-7. And so the company was able to strong arm 
the local politicians into reducing their electrical rate to try to keep the company operating. Now, none of these problems that the company encountered, none of the layoffs, none of these requests for a lower utility rate would have happened if they had not loaded it up with debt, if they had not hobbled the company with the debt that allowed Apollo to reap three times its investment. So it's a perfect example of how these transactions hurt a broad array of people and enrich a very few. So you end up having, in this case, you had state ratepayers, other people in Missouri had to make up the difference between their former electric bills and the electric bills that were now higher because Noranda got a rate cut. An aluminum smelter uses huge amounts of electricity. Oh, this is an example of why we're interviewing Gretchen Morganson, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, on her book, together with Joshua Rosner, called These Are the Plunderers, How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America. And listeners, we're going to get to the counterattack later in the program. But one area that these predatory capitalists have moved into is health care. Hospitals buying up doctors' practices. They are basically engaged in strip mining this essential service. Nurses are required to work more to serve more patients per day so it can save more money for these plunderers. And so I want to ask Gretchen about a case study she has in the book. Manor Care was a nursing home chain. It had nursing homes all around the country, dozens of them. It was fairly well regarded. And then a group called the Carlisle Group in Washington, D.C., founded by David Rubenstein, who was a White House aide to President Jimmy Carter. And he got his eye on manor care. Now, please run us through, Gretchen, what happened here, because I want people to realize that the impact here is on them. It's on the workers. It's on the patients. It's on the insurance policy holders. It's on the pension holders. We'll get to the pension investments in a moment. How did they wreck manor care? And what was David Rubenstein's role here? Well, David Rubenstein was a co-founder of Carlyle Group and very powerful. And so he was instrumental in creating the firm. And so although he might not have been you know, involved in the nitty gritty of this particular transaction to buy Manor Care, he certainly was overseeing the firm at the time. So Manor Care and Carlyle is another perfect example of how these private equity predators wind up really extracting all of the value from a company and then leaving the patients, the workers holding the bag. So Manor Care, as you pointed out, was well run. They had a chain across the country. They owned the land under their nursing home properties. Now, what that meant was that they didn't have high rental costs. So they were not paying a landlord to rent their spaces. They were essentially sitting on their own assets in this case. What Manor Care wound up doing under Carlisle was selling the real estate under the nursing homes 
so that Carlisle could extract the money that it had put into the company, into the investment, several years after the investment was made. So when they sold the land underneath the nursing homes, Carlisle essentially was free and clear, had got its money back, and everything after that would be gravy. So what that meant, it meant good things for Carlisle to get the money back and to, you know, a return on their investment. But what it meant for Manor Care was that now the company had to start paying rent to the new owner of the land underneath their nursing home properties. Well, this was a disaster and it ended predictably in bankruptcy. The company could not make the payments and the company filed for bankruptcy. Now, an interesting piece of the manor care puzzle also is the Medicare fraud that was levied, charges of Medicare fraud levied by the Department of Justice and by internal whistleblowers who had seen the company improperly bill Medicare for therapy services for the patients. So at the same time that you're having this, or subsequently, subsequent to the bankruptcy, you have this investigation by the Justice Department into the Medicare fraud at Manor Care. You also had the Washington Post, which did a series of scathing articles on how the quality of care had diminished under Carlisle's ownership of Manor Care. Also, you had the workers who were concerned at the outset when the transaction occurred, they were concerned that there was going to be a change, that they were going to be made to work harder, that there was going to be problems for them. And they required Manor Care and Manor Care offered to say, no, we will continue to, you know, treat you the same way. The care will be the same. We will not fire people. And so it just is a great case in point where the promises made were not necessarily delivered to the stakeholders involved, the patients, the workers, but the, certainly the returns and the profits were delivered to the predatory capitalists. Well, there's an end to the story that was really astonishing. Justice Department got into this because of the manipulation of billing off of Medicare by uh, Carlisle. The prosecutors got in. And the prosecutors were very confident, as you indicate in your book. One of them said that we're going to pursue this without hesitation. We're going to go after them. Tell us what happened with the Justice Department prosecution. Well, this is a tragedy, Ralph, because I spoke at length with one of the whistleblowers. And as you know, whistleblowers are courageous people who stand up and speak out when they see wrongdoing. And this was a woman named Christine Ribick, who was a therapist, and she saw what was going on and saw the improper billing. And she spoke out about it, and the Justice Department took up her case. There were several other whistleblowers as well, but the Justice Department saw the merit in their accusations and started work and researching and just used a tremendous amount of resources to bring this case. But at the end of the case, they folded. They had apparently one expert witness, and there was some problem with the expert witness. She had lost her notes. Anyway, it was, according to Christine, who lived this, it was incompetence. 
on the part of the prosecutors and it wrecked the whistleblowers lives. They could no longer get work. Their names were out in the public domain because of this case. Manor Care triumphed. They said, oh, see, we did nothing wrong. And it was a debacle. Very, very sad outcome. Yeah, the Justice Department didn't even ask for a settlement negotiation with Carlisle, dismissed the case. This is after one of the top prosecutors said, quote, we will not relent in our efforts to stop these false billing schemes and recover funds for federal health care programs, end quote. So that's the way Carlisle got away with it again. Let's talk a little bit more about Carlisle. What can you tell us about other things that they have done and they have enriched themselves to multi-billionaire partner levels? Well, they're just one of the, uh, you know, coterie firms. There are about five firms that are very big in this regard. You know, it's interesting, I think, that now David Rubenstein is retired and, you know, he's a philanthropist. And of course, this is what these wealthy people do once they've, you know, finished their careers and made so, so much money, they become philanthropists. I think he owns a copy of the Constitution. He obviously is someone who has a belief in the American way and loves America and is investing in it with much of the money that he made as a private equity titan. But, you know, it's again, the focus that we wanted to bring on these practices We've all read about David Rubenstein and Steve Schwarzman and Leon Black and Henry Kravis. We read about them constantly. They're always lauded for their brilliance and, you know, their billionaire status. What we just don't hear about are the people on the other side of their transactions. The people on the other side of the table the Katie Watsons, the Christine Ribbicks, the people who stand up and say what we're doing here is wrong, the people of Naranda, the 2,500 people who lost their jobs in Missouri. And by the way, in that case, the school system was out money and they couldn't afford to buy books for the children because of the Naranda bankruptcy. So what we're trying to show here is the circle of pain We're trying to identify all the people who lose when this very small coterie of elite financiers win. Well, you know, reading this book, I've read a lot of books on corporate crime, Gretchen. This is the first one that made me sick to my stomach. It was so disgusting, totally parasitical. It would be good to have some of these guys come on the program and expose themselves to the light of some questions they're not used to because they very rarely have to get hauled up before Congress, which we'll get to in a moment. But you have an intriguing chapter which says that some states prohibit corporations from practicing medicine explicitly, obviously, you know, because the way they corporations practicing medicine can destroy the medical profession and its independent judgment and its ethical imperatives. Now, Texas is one of those states as well, and your chapter called Call to Action went unheeded, standing by while corporations practice medicine. They have used their corporate law firms, which I wish you had uh, spent a few pages going into, because these are the devious 
brains that developed these schemes, these big corporate law firms in New York, Chicago, Boston, Los Angeles, elsewhere, they developed a system where the corporations could take over hospitals and medical practices and avoid being prosecuted for illegally practicing medicine and still have sort of dummy doctors, what we call company doctors, be nominally in charge of running these medical practices. Some of these doctors are running many of these practices because they're only nominal. No human being could run so many medical institutions. Tell us about this. And are these laws able to have teeth and obstruct the takeover of all these healthcare institutions by these vulture capitalists? Well, it's amazing to me that there have not been any cases. So a state AG could bring a case against the corporate practice of medicine, but nobody has done that. And so this is another example of people who are just standing by not doing their jobs. And it's quite disappointing and distressing. But we learned how this works. And this really is quite a brilliant sort of end run around the laws that are on the books barring the corporate practice of medicine. And it's an end run where, as you explained, they use a paper sort of owner. They have a doctor who they pay and the doctor is ostensibly supposed to be running the operation. That's what the goal of barring corporate practice of medicine is about it. It requires that a doctor be running the operation not a corporation. So they've been able to persuade doctors to use their name as the head of an operation, but that's just in name only. And what ends up happening is the corporation, in this case, this was involved a medical staffing company that is now owned by KKR. It's called Envision. In this case, we found that a doctor had 300 different practices in his name in multiple states that the staffing company was using to circumvent the corporate practice of medicine laws. And it was a fascinating case because without the discovery of this lawsuit, which was brought by an emergency physician who was fired for standing up and saying, our hospital is not safe for patients. He was fired by the staffing company, the private equity-owned staffing company. Had we not seen this lawsuit, which he filed as a wrongful dismissal case, we would not know that this is how they do it. But we do know now, and here you have a situation where doctors are paid to be in name only the head of the operation so that they can circumvent corporate practice of medicine laws. Well, one of the things that these companies say by way of justifying what they're doing is that they add value to the companies they acquire. They are saviors of troubled businesses. Your description is of the bad actors, you know, where they acquire relatively healthy companies and just quoting you, finance the purchases with so much debt that it sickens these companies. To meet the interest payment on the debt, the firms typically gut the acquired company through the sale of assets or businesses 
then cut costs by laying off employees and reducing worker costs like health care and retirement benefits. Are there any instances where they actually do a good thing? They make a good contribution by saving so-called companies. Well, you know, there must be, Ralph, obviously there are many, many of these kinds of firms and they're not, every transaction is not as devastating as some of the ones that we highlight, but enough of them are. I mean, there's academic research that shows that these highly leveraged transactions result in many times more bankruptcies than, than companies that are not heavily leveraged. We obviously see the nursing home study that was so so distressing that found that private equity-owned nursing homes, residents find that there's 10% higher mortality rates. It's these kinds of longitudinal, very reliable, unbiased academic research that really tell the full story. So yes, there are always going to be examples of companies and particularly private equity firms that don't use the heavy debt. They may very easily take over a company using equity instead of debt and making it better. But I will say that when I asked Blackstone for their comments on the thesis that this book presents, which is that these titans are hollowing out the U.S. economy, harming workers, harming pensioners, harming customers. Blackstone told me that they actually created 200,000 new jobs over the past 15 years. So they were arguing against this notion of, you know, destroying jobs, slashing jobs. And I was very intrigued by this. I asked them to provide me with the data that backs up that and they refused. So it was very interesting to me that they're willing to say that they created 200,000 new jobs over 15 years, but they're not willing to show me those numbers and what's backing them. Well, you've had long experience in not getting your calls returned. You are a star reporter, especially on the Sunday business page of the New York Times that now is being devoted to photography like a huge picture of J.G. Vance. But every Sunday, you would have an expose that would give indigestion to some of these super rich guys at their breakfast eating their crepe zuzettes. And they'd pick up the paper. So you're used to not getting your calls returned. But you always have a correction part of your exposés. In other words, what kind of reforms? We're not going to get into, listeners, the enormous tax escapes that these multi-billionaires get for their strip mining vulture escapades. Just assume that they get these huge payouts and they found ways to avoid paying taxes or only pay very small rate of taxes. But in your last chapter, you say, who will stop the bleeding? And you have a a number of players that are beginning to, in your words, stir from their stupor, end quote, like the FTC and the Justice Department. Could you run through for us the rising counterattack against these predatory capitalists? Well, we're starting to see, as you note, more interest in antitrust the issues surrounding antitrust of these acquisitions. So 
as you mentioned, healthcare. Healthcare has been a focus of these plunderers for decades. And so now, finally, I believe the FTC and perhaps the DOJ is going to start looking at roll-ups of acquisitions of physician practices. As you know, traditionally, the only deals that really get scrutiny from antitrust regulators are very large deals that you know, involve a combination that will make the potential for anti-competitive activities real for their customers. So these small acquisitions of physician practices didn't get on anyone's radar. They didn't make it to that level of size or importance. And yet it has allowed these firms to acquire and control a lot, a lot of the healthcare industry. Private equity-owned staffing companies oversee 40% of the nation's emergency departments. So when you have them buying up small, you know, physician practices here and there, after a while, it becomes a problem. Finally, the regulators are starting to look at that. They have made noises. The FTC, Lena Khan, has talked about this as an area of interest that they're going to going to definitely look at. So that's one thing. How about the Justice Department? Well, the sort of disappointing thing about the Justice Department is that when they bring these cases against the companies that are, whatever, doing Medicare fraud, like in the manor care situation, they don't move up the corporate ladder to the owner of the company. The Justice Department, you know, does the work on the particular company that is owned by private equity, but they don't go up the ladder. And that has a way of allowing the firms like Carlisle in the Manor Care case to escape scrutiny and to escape accountability. So that would be an ideal thing to change. If you could get well, I'm sure some of our listeners, Gretchen, are saying, "Why do these pension firms oh, invest yes. in in such things?" Oh. And you talk about a pension firm that hired a lawyer that is suing Carlisle and including their top executives. Can you describe that? That seems to be a hopeful opening, and also describe Judge Rakoff's pioneering decision on the liability of the board of directors of these groups. All right. Well, Judge Rakoff is in the Southern District of New York. He's a federal judge, and he was overseeing a bankruptcy case in which there was private equity ownership. And what he ruled, it was quite a sensible ruling, but it really rocked the world of these predatory financiers. What he said was, if you're going to sell a company to to another acquirer, to a private equity firm, As a board of directors, you have to have determined that the acquirer and the acquirer's business model and their financial structure for the ongoing operation of the company is sustainable. So not too much debt as these typically are. So Jed Rakoff said to the, he was just basically saying to boards of directors, you have the responsibility of selling the company to an actor who will be sustainable, who will not pile the debt on, who will not hobble the company, who will not make it impossible for the company to survive. So this was a quite alarming ruling 
for the private equity world. It has not been followed up with any other rulings like it, but it was a harbinger of some some sort of a, a shift in the idea that the only obligation a board of directors has is to get the highest price for the sale of a company for its shareholders. So now all of a sudden you have to worry about the acquirer, what the acquirer is going to do, put in the way of a corporate structure, and will it be sustainable? You point out there's an emerging left-right alliance in the civic community here, not just progressive citizen groups riding herd, but there's emerging conservative groups that are opposing these rapacious policies by the predatory capitalists. Wouldn't you think that, you know, conservatives who represent working class people, why would they not be concerned about this? I mean, it, it makes complete sense that people who represent the lower and middle classes who are really being victimized by some of these practices, why wouldn't they want to stop them? But, you know, it's traditionally been held that, you know, capitalism is good for everyone. And so therefore, they're not going to take it up as an issue to fight. But this form of capitalism is different. And this form of capitalism, we argue, is so pernicious and so imbalanced in its winners and losers that it really, really deserves scrutiny. Well, it's been said that these predatory capitalists corrupt everybody they touch, like pension fund managers who have to invest billions of dollars of worker pension funds somewhere to get a higher rate of return than they may get with treasury bonds or whatever. And members of Congress who are taking money in big amounts from these predatory capitalists, give us the scene. Is that scene getting any worse or better? What's your view on that development? Well, the pension funds are the oxygen that these firms need to exist. And so it has been absolutely disturbing in the extreme that pension funds, public pension funds, the very people who are supposed to serve the workers who are typically hurt most by these activities, these pension funds continue to provide oxygen to these firms in the form of their billions of dollars that they invest with them. I don't see that changing and it's quite distressing because now, Ralph, the returns of these private equity titans are not as high as they were. And in fact, they are not any better than a Standard & Poor's 500 index fund, which costs very little money to invest in. So the idea that these pension funds continue to be dazzled by the salespeople, I guess, that come through and dazzled by, you know, having a billionaire talking to them about why they should invest with them, I don't get it. I mean, pensions should absolutely question this involvement in this kind of an unsustainable business model, but they don't. And that holds true for large university endowments like Harvard, Princeton, Stanford. They're tempted by the same Lorelei's of these funds, aren't they? Correct, unfortunately. What's your view of the capable mass media here coverage? They've done some good work, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. But tell me, if you were their editor, what additional investigations would you 
pursue? Well, every time I would write about a company, I would ask the reporter to find out who owns that company. Traditionally, private equity titans have been able to hide behind the curtain of the ownership of these companies. For example, the terrible, terrible stories that you've read about the slaughterhouse cleaning company, PSSI, hiring children as young as 13 years old to clean slaughterhouses at night in the Midwest. You've read those stories. You've recoiled when reading those stories. Now, PSSI is owned by Blackstone. And so it is something of a, a, an improvement in the coverage that Blackstone is named in the stories about PSSI. Historically, these firms have been sort of behind the curtain and hidden from view. But now at least there's a, I think, a belief that you really need to talk about who owns these companies because who owns them are the people who are really requiring the companies to operate with the profit motive in mind that might lead them to cut corners and make bad decisions. So I am very happy that we have started to see the recognition that the owners of the companies, not just the companies themselves, really need to be tagged in these stories. It's pretty remarkable the lackadaisical nature of Congress, even taking it at a low standard of evaluation. They really should have very high-profile hearings, get these guys up there under oath, really have staff that can capably run the hearings in terms of depth and advice to the senators and representatives. And that just hasn't happened. And it's because not enough people are heeding the lessons that you've described in your book, that these are not just abstract financiers dealing with derivatives and other mumbo jumbo. They affect your life as taxpayers, consumers, workers, patients, people in the community. When these guys get this kind of money, they buy three, four, or five homes in New England towns and drive up the price of home ownership for, for everybody. So don't think this is abstract. And the only way I can elaborate what I'm saying to you listeners is you have to get this book. This book is physically easy to read. It's got spaces between the lines. It is clearly written. It's called These are the Plunderers, How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America. And it's by Gretchen Morganson and winner of the Pulitzer Prize and Joshua Rosner, who is a New York Times bestselling author of Reckless Endangerment. And they're trying to convey something that is complex in clear terms. As one prosecutor in Ohio once said, look, take all these complicated deals. It all boils down to lying, cheating, and stealing. Old-fashioned words. So let's get some other people in here, Gretchen, before we conclude. Steve and David and Hannah. Yeah, Ms. Morganson, I wanted to know... Why is this such an acute problem now? What in history, in terms of legislation or regulation, led to the primacy of these private equity firms? Well, the reason that we started back in the 80s was that that was when this really, this practice really began. Back then, it was a different scenario. Back then, in the early 80s, of course, you remember we had very high inflation, the stock market was way down. 
And so these financiers were able to spot companies that were undervalued, that were sort of beaten down in the stock market, and then they could ride the improvement. Well, now we are in a circumstance where that is not the case. And so what they're doing is they're looking for companies that are already probably, they're buying companies that are already probably lean, probably, you know, valued properly. And yet they need to generate these high returns. And what that means is that they're perhaps even having a greater pernicious impact because there isn't an easy profit to be made here. So when they come in and start to fire workers or dismantle pensions or reduce health care benefits, it's from probably an already pretty lean level, pretty efficient level. It's 30 years of this practice. We are now sort of, we feel, getting to the point where you really have to understand it because it's now starting to hollow out people, companies, and places. Whereas before, it wasn't having quite that impact. A lot of the deregulation came under Bill Clinton's presidency and Bob Rubin, his treasury secretary, repealing the effective Glass-Steagall Act of Franklin Delano Roosevelt that created such stability in the banking system. And then Rubin resigned early before Clinton left office and became a high official of Citigroup and made tens of millions of dollars in just a few months. So I noticed that in the chapter, there are also a lot of tax breaks under the Clinton administration that these vulture capitalists are taking advantage of. David? Well, Larry Summers was working in the Clinton administration when he wasn't president of Harvard. And Elizabeth Warren always makes fun of the endowment, how it performed when Larry Summers was president of Harvard, that the Harvard endowment underperformed the market. So I want to ask you about this revolving door. Pension fund managers or people who run Harvard's endowment turn money that is basically sacred over to private equity. And you said that they don't get as good a return as an index fund does. Is there a revolving door where pension fund managers or people working Harvard's endowment, do they then go to work for the same private equity firms that they had given the endowment to? Can we track the revolving door? You know, we haven't seen that revolving door as much as we've seen the revolving door of regulators going to work for some of these firms. For instance, Jay Clayton, who ran the Securities and Exchange Commission, went to work as a board member for Apollo. That's an example. We don't really see the pension folks joining these firms in quite the same way that you do the higher level regulators, which is the traditional revolving door that Ralph knows well and that we see in Washington. To your question, a lot of Justice Department prosecutors leave, go to the corporate law firms and spearhead maneuvers for these private equity firms to escape regulation, cut deferred prosecution deals, lobby on Capitol Hill for preserving the carried interest tax loophole and all sorts of things. That's where it really is. It's not just the regulatory agents. It's the Justice Department, very knowledgeable 
employers who then sell out for double, triple their salary or more to these corporate law firms. The headline that is so overwhelming is these hedge funds do not outperform the market. So like everything in corporate America, nobody benefits except the people at the top taking the skim. It's unbelievable. And the fact that these people are multi-billionaires is just appalling. Anna? I'm curious if we're looking for ways to hold all of these people accountable. This sounds like a very elaborate conspiracy. One might call it racketeering. I'm curious if there's potential to go after these systems under RICO. Well, you know, Ralph would know that better than I. I am not a lawyer. It would seem to me that if you have several cases of, say, Medicare fraud occurring under the same roof, and that roof is owned by private equity firms, then yes, I don't see why you wouldn't think about bringing a RICO case. You're correct. Correct. Well, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? They tend to lean toward trying to do something. We always urge them to contact their senators and representatives. What would be the message? What would be the message to get the ball rolling, say, on Capitol Hill? Well, I guess that's the message is, you know, there was legislation that was put forward both in the House and the Senate called the Stop Wall Street Looting Act, which would end some of these practices. For instance, it would bar private equity firms from being able to put debt on a company so that they can take money out for themselves. So you couldn't do what Apollo did with Naranda, for example. And so I think that if people want to reach out to their legislators and say, please support that law, that legislation, because that is the best we've got so far in how to deal with some of these practices and say, I am disturbed by this winner-take-all mentality and how these people have amassed these unspeakable fortunes on the backs of you know, uh, everyone else. This is the Stop the Wall Street Looting Act. And who are the two main sponsors in the House? Well, Elizabeth Warren in the Senate and some other Democrats. And I am forgetting who is in the House. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, listeners, you can write in and, and ask Elizabeth Warren what she thinks you could do, since she's on the front lines challenging Wall Street over the years. I'm sure they have a whole list of things that you could be doing. Well, thank you very much, Gretchen. We're very pleased to have a chance to discuss your book, These Are the Plunderers, Gretchen Morganson. And we're looking forward to this book popping up on Capitol Hill and pumping up the need for old-fashioned investigative congressional hearings. That's the way the ball gets rolled toward any kind of corrective practice in our history. That's what gets publicity. That's what gets sworn testimony. And so, listeners, if you contact your members when they come back for the Memorial Day recess, the July 4th recess, the full August recess, and they're walking around your communities, give them an earful. Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you, Ralph. My pleasure. We've been speaking with Gretchen Morganson. We will link to her book, These Are the Plunderers, at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Now, before we take our leave, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokiver. 
From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, May 26, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The number of people with highly drug-resistant bacterial infections linked to contaminated eye drops has reached 81. That's according to a report from NBC News. The 81 cases, up from 68 identified in March, include 14 people who have been blinded and four others who have had their eyeballs surgically removed. Though most infections have been limited to the eyes, the bacteria can be fatal when it enters the bloodstream. As of this week, the CDC said four people have died. These were catastrophic and life-altering infections, said the CDC's Maroya Spalding Walters. Though many patients said they used multiple brands of eye drops, Esri Care Artificial Tears was found to be a common brand among those infected. Open bottles of the Esri Care drops were also found to harbor the same bacteria found in samples taken from patients. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. And that's our show. I want to thank our guest again, Gretchen Morganson. For those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out right now for you podcast listeners. Stay tuned for some bonus material we call the wrap-up, including Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. You know what's right and you know what's wrong. Don't let the system hold you down. Trying. You say we have no choice. Say you're just one person, and who will hear your voice?